Welcome to our podcast. We hope that this content is a blessing for your life. Enjoy the message. continuing meditating on Ephesians chapter 4. This is going to be the sixth sermon that we have preached on this chapter. It's a very rich, rich chapter with so many powerful truths. And uh, as we have gone into it, you know, it has just been revealing more and more of the truth of God. So um, we are just, you know, following it as it leads us. And... um, this, this morning, I want to especially uh, concentrate on verses 17 and on. Uh, but uh, before I do that, just so that you can see the, the flow of things and the, the connections, the uh, logical connections between the various parts of this chapter, because after all, I think that there's some truth that we've been trying to emphasize all throughout. This idea of unity uh, was the, the beginning of this whole meditation. The fact that, you know, we live in times that uh, bring people apart. We live in times of great division, times of conflict. We don't need to insist on that. We live every day within uh, the, the context of conflict and differing points of view, sometimes mutually exclusive, sometimes uh, intense and passionate. They, they, they tear families apart, whether it, because of the political uh, convictions or whether how to deal with COVID, um, different versions almost of the reality that we are living in right now in the world and so on. So, you know, much division and the church has not been uh, uh, unharmed or untouched by a controversy either. And so we live in times of great division and therefore I think we need to stress the importance of unity. Unity uh, is not something that happens just you know, by coincidence or by chance or by inertia. Unity is something that we work at. It is something that we adopt as a value. It is something that sometimes you have to make every effort to maintain. And that's what the Bible says, you know, right there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then we, we've talked about some of the, <clears throat> some of the virtues and attitudes and, and Christian values that make that unity possible. Things like humility and the meekness of heart. And, uh, of course, love, which is above every other value that we can muster. Uh, patience with each other when we are not uh, in accord with each other. And, uh, you know, I think th- these times that we're living in, they require patience because... You know, this COVID uh, situation has uh, lingered for months and months and months. And uh, you need patience until this thing, you know, is finally vanquished. You just need to do the same disciplines every day of coming to church, giving your tithes and offerings, worshiping the Lord, having your devotions, reading the Bible. You know, these are things that we do um, out of habit in the best sense of the word. These are just, we patiently go through the uh, life of a believer, even in times of trial. And, you know, the, the, the Apostle Paul spoke, spoke about also, wrote about in verse 4, about the fact that, you know, that we are bonded by one body, by one spirit, one hope, uh, one baptism, one Lord. These are very powerful things that bind us together, and that therefore we need to honor and not 
you know, allow ourselves to be divided and to become discouraged or disenchanted with uh, our congregation or with our brothers and sisters just because of little things. Ultimately, they are little things. In the light of this great God that unifies us and keeps us together, we have to stay together. And then, you know, the Apostle Paul, after those uh, first uh, six verses that speak about all these sublime things, uh, goes a little bit deeper and talks about how this God that is above everything, through Jesus Christ, has given the church all kinds of gifts. Gifts that I, I would say are embodied gifts. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. These are uh, gifted individuals who are in every church, ideally, they should be, and they are. The fact, whether they are recognized or not, they are there. The gifts are, in, God puts, it, uh, puts these gifts in, in, in the hearts and in the, the, the life of individuals in the church. And these gifts of apostleship and pastoring and so on are given for one thing, which is to keep the church strong, to keep the church healthy, to enable the members of a congregation like ours to serve the Lord. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is committed to the health of a congregation. The Holy Spirit is committed to a church where different people are doing different things, gifted and blessed by the Spirit of God. I, I would refer you also to Romans chapter 12, which is a beautiful chapter that speaks about how we should um, carry out the gifts that God gives to us. We should do it uh, responsibly, um, with excellence, accepting the gift that we have been given without lusting for the gifts of somebody else, finding what our gift is and moving in that gift. And so you see that all these things are, you know, just in verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, etc., verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know, and, and here, as we enter into this idea of a, a sort of a beehive of, of uh, um, good activity, constructive activity, which should be the church, um, you know, we are called, uh, we, we are entering into a more specific, solid, I would say robust understanding of, of the unity of the church and of the life of the church. It's no longer those grand concepts of love and patience and um, uh, humility and so on and so forth. We're getting now into a more concrete understanding of the church, a church that is working, a church that is serving a church where people are discovering their particular responsibility. A church where people come to be prepared. They don't come just to worship and, you know, to consume. They come to be prepared to serve and uh, to give out. So again, you know, one of the, the guiding principles for me as I've interpreted this chapter is this idea that the unity of the, of the body of Christ is, is a unity that is founded on very concrete things, on concrete beliefs. We need to see the, the church of Jesus Christ as something dynamic, where we are responsible. We have to be working. We have to be using our gifts for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And all of this activity of different people in the body of Christ leads to a church then that is mature. See in, in verse um, 12 at the end, uh, in the knowledge of the Son of God, so that we become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that um, throughout the life of a church, over the years of a community such as Congregation Lion of Judah, what should happen is that people should be discovering their gifts, 
they should feel empowered by the Holy Spirit. They should feel this sense of calling and responsibility. The church is growing. Uh, the church should be more mature. The church should be more solid. People should be uh, more founded on the Word of God. Uh, the, the church uh, heals and uh, preaches the gospel and serves the kingdom of God. This, this, this is the, the maturity, the perfection um, is the, the intention in the original Greek. The, the church becomes what it should become. And, you know, I think we need to adopt this uh, solid understanding of the life of the believer it's not just to consume. It's not just to come and, you know, worship God and, you know, live this ethereal, abstract uh, life of the church. Really, the life of a believer is something very concrete where we have specific responsibilities and we discharge those responsibilities. And the church lives with a sense of purpose and progress um, and effort. So uh, at the end of that, that uh, unity, there should be a mature body, a mature church that knows its responsibilities and that moves in an orderly, coherent, constructive fashion. And then in verse 14, you remember that we talked about, you know, how that, what that maturity looks like. It means that we will no longer be, you know, infants. In other words, you know, a, a, a mature believer is not impressionable. A mature believer doesn't just flee for, you know, uh, this preacher or that preacher or that church or that movement or that new doctrine. The people of God are sober, they're mature, they're solid, they know what they believe, their faith is grounded on the Word of God. They don't go around, you know, uh, going to the hottest new uh, current of thought. We measure things. We have a foundation in the Word of God. So when we hear Teaching, we measure it against the Word of God. Is it true? Is that what the Bible says? Does it reflect the spirit of uh, the Word? We are not easily swayed. And this is what the, the Apostle Paul says. You know, we're not swayed by every wind of doctrine. You know, we live in a time when <clears throat> culture is so powerful. And I really believe that right now the church is in a state of flux, the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. Um, I think we are living in a very uh, delicate time in the life of the church. And I think the church has faced such times throughout its 2,000-year history. There have been other moments in history where the church has had to confront uh, wrong doctrine, where um, different teachings have threatened to take the church away from its uh, center and from its foundation. But I think almost like never before, we live in a time where culture is um, able to affect church in a very powerful way. What the church believes, what we Christians believe. We have a very powerful church that can, uh, culture that can communicate itself through very powerful media. Through, you know, uh, audio and video and all the different mechanisms that we know that communicate culture today. Powerful colors, powerful sounds, powerful music, powerful speech reasoning like never before, computers, and so on and so forth. So uh, culture, the culture that we live in right now is able to impact the mind unlike any other time, I think, in human history. And we have all kinds of, <clears throat> all kinds of wrong teachings, uh, cultural teachings that impact the church. And uh, we are slowly uh, being seduced into a different way of understanding the gospel and of understanding morality and human relationships and the rearing of children 
friendship, and so on and so forth. And like never before, the church needs to be alert. The church needs to be mature. The church needs to be fed by good teaching, by grounding itself on the Word of God. Because the power of culture to affect what we believe is more uh, significant than ever. So we have to be defensive in our attitude. Not defensive in the sense of, you know, being afraid or being paranoid. No, defensive in the sense that we know that we walk a dangerous territory, just like we do with COVID. You know, we know that it's out there and that it can affect us. So we take good uh, measures to uh, counter it. And I think that's what we need to do also. We have a COVID situation right now of teaching and doctrine and belief in the church. It's out there. And we need to walk with great soberness and grounded more than ever on the Word of God so that we can be mature and not be swayed by every wind of teaching. Um, and, you know, I, I love this uh, in, in verse 16. Then I'm going to enter into what we have uh, today. But I just want you, again, I want to repeat over and over again this sweep of this chapter so that we understand how these things are interconnected and why I have stayed in it for such a long time. In verse 16 of uh, chapter 4, it says, From him... The whole body joined and held together. That him is Jesus Christ. Um, from him, the whole body. Who is the body? The whole body. The church, right? Uh, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Um, if, you can, if you can put chap, uh, verse uh, 16, uh, Wendy, on there. From him, the whole body. Verse 16. Um, you know, notice this image. I'm, I'm fascinated by this image of building, of structure. You know, we've been building for many, many years here at the church, and so you become sensitive to um, these images of building. Just as we're driving in uh, this morning into the church, you know, there's a building that's going up right next to Whole Foods when you come out of Route uh, 93. And, uh, you know, I have the I guess the curious privilege of watching this building go, these buildings go up and all that building that's taking place in the south end. Uh, and uh, you see them every day you go by, they're adding things. And you know, that building, which is, it must be 15 stories high or more, slender building, small, but very high. And you know, I've seen it, how it began. It began with a, a foundation. They've dug deep because it's going to be a tall building, so it needs a deep foundation. And then, you know, they, they, they start putting up these huge, heavy beams. And, and the skeleton of that building is very powerful. You know, the, these beams are they're, they're, uh, welded together. And in the beginning, it doesn't look very attractive. It's just a skeleton. But it's interesting that the first thing that they would do is build the skeleton. Because those beams are going to support everything else, and are going to keep the whole structure together. Without a firm foundation and without a firm supporting structure, no building can withstand the pressures of weight and wind and all kinds of other uh, displacements. So, um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this idea. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. What are, what are the ligaments? The ligaments are these, uh, I don't know, these bands, really, that um, hold together the different bones, the different uh, beams uh, of the body. They, they, they keep this bone linked to this particular bone so that when you move, this bone doesn't fly out in one direction and the other in another direction or your leg, you know. It's this idea, what, what holds the body together? 
these ligaments. And the word ligare in Latin, ligar in Spanish, means to tie, to bind together. You know, and what is the ligament that keeps uh, the church of Jesus Christ together? What is the ligament that allows the different uh, energies of the church to stay together and enable the church to move in a coherent fashion? I would say that it's the doctrine of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible. It is the, the beliefs that one faith that uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul speaks about. That's what keeps us together. That's the ligament. And so I refer you again to this um, image of the church uh, as something that is concrete. It is strong. It is structural in nature. The unity of the church is structural. It's not some sort of, uh, you know, kumbaya, as I've said before, unity of just it's romantic and... Uh, you know, nice, and, and uh, you know, everybody do whatever they feel, and uh, yes, you believe what you want to believe, and I believe what I want to believe, and that's okay, because we come together on Sunday, and we sing songs, and we, and, uh, we hear a, a sermon, and so on and so forth. No. The unity uh, of the church is, again, a structural unity. It's just like the unity of the body. The body is uh, led by a, a neurology and a brain that brings all the different strands of the, of the human being together, physical, emotional, uh, you know, everything. And, it, it, you know, the body, if it's whole and it's healthy, it won't do whatever it wants. This hand will move in concert with this hand and this body and these legs, and my speech will be goal-oriented and coherent because it's all held together by one common structure, which is the brain a common neurology, a common biology. And I think the church has to be like that too. And, you know, this preaching that I've uh, undertaken these past few Sundays has been uh, uh, in the light of that. It's not neutral preaching. It is preaching in the light of a controversy. It is designed, I think, to counter what I think is a wrong uh, direction of the church in our time. I want to keep us healthy and this is why I insist on certain things. It's not simply because I'm, you know, I have an axe to grind or something like that. Because I believe that it is my responsibility to keep us healthy, to keep us whole, to keep us well taught, to keep us well founded. And that's not pleasant many times. When your mom tells you, you know, drink your milk, eat your spinach, you know, nourish yourself, wash yourself, take a bath. These are not necessarily happy things for a child, but they keep the child Healthy, And I think in these times of great danger, of great doctrinal danger, the Church of Christ needs to insist on good, solid, wholesome teaching. Because that's what's going to keep us together. These are the ligaments, good doctrine and uh, good teaching. And this understanding of the church as something that is robust, solid, responsible, and uh, purpose-driven. So now, getting into um, verse 17... I want to continue with that same theme of solidity and concreteness. What I see here, and I may have said that before in some other context throughout uh, this uh, chapter. What I see here is that um, doctrine, doctrine matters. And uh, again, doctrine does not stay in the 10,000 foot high height it sooner or later hits the ground, and sooner or later becomes, uh, how should I say, um, conduct-oriented. 
It, um, it, it hits us where we live. It speaks to our relationships. It speaks to our emotions. It speaks to our morality. It speaks to our business practices. It speaks to our professional life or our work life as a whole. You know, it speaks to the way we rear our children. It speaks to how we manage our emotions and our appetites and so on and so forth. And, and this is why I, you know, I resist many times this idea that, um, you know, uh, pastors shouldn't meddle, that they shouldn't get in people's lives. Well, I think, you know, good pastors uh, get in, in people's face. They, um, they will um, say things that bother and that uh, confront out of love, and I hope that that love is always uh, evident, but it needs to, they need to because this is what the church, this is what the Bible does. You know, the Apostle Paul never wrote a book, I believe, that stayed purely in the big grand design of doctrine and theology. Sooner or later, the pastor in him, the church planter in him, um, gets into conduct and lifestyle, and relationships among the, the people who make up the body of the church. And you will see that over and over again. Take Romans, for example. Romans is the most exalted, theologically oriented letter in the New Testament. And, and the Apostle Paul was a sublime, sublime theologian. And, uh, and, you know, in the first 11 chapters of that letter to the Romans, he goes through some of the most important foundational doctrines of Christianity. And he describes the whole plan of God. And, you know, in a sweep, he goes right through all of human history practically and how God has been dealing with humanity, leading them up to Jesus Christ. It's a grand, beautiful, you know, encompassing uh, explanation of the gospel. But then in, in chapter 12, he says, now in the light of that, this is what you are supposed to do and this is the way you are supposed to live. And then the next chapters of Romans are dedicated to issues of discipline, service, relationship, morality, and so on and so forth. And this is, this is the way, you know, we cannot stay simply in, in the pleasant, uh, big picture understandings of doctrine. Sooner or later, the Bible is going to speak to us about things that will make us uncomfortable, things that will call us to change our character, to die to self to yield to uncomfortable truths that will call us to confront ourselves, to do things that we don't want to do, and, and to not do things that we desperately and passionately and compulsively want to do. And that's where, you know, uh, the Bible gets, I was going to say unpleasant, you know, but I think over, over time, as we become mature, uh, when we find a challenge in Scripture, rather than feel alienated and resentful, we should almost like, yes, give me more. Because uh, we have learned by then, hopefully, to appreciate growth, to appreciate truth, to appreciate any opportunity to become better and to become more Christ-like, even when it is unpleasant. We have changed our interests from wanting to be comfortable and mellow to wanting to grow and serve and be effective and be more like Christ. So then when the Bible speaks to us in a confrontative way, we bow our head, we thank the Lord for it, and we say, yes, Lord, I will do better. I receive your truth. So what happens here then, after all these, these uh, previous 16 verses, look at this, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Notice the 
very powerful way uh, uh, that, that, you know, he begins. This soul tells me that all of those other verses are connected now to this, conclu- this conclusion. He's had several conclusions, but this one is sort of the, the, the crowning one, the, the, the final uh, foundational one. So I tell you this, insist, by the way, it's interesting enough, the word insist on it in Greek is marturio, which is the word for martyr. And it's the idea, and I testify to you. A martyr is somebody who witnesses to the Lord, even though it may cost them. So Paul is kind of uh, framing what he's going to say in a very powerful, serious tone. I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live. Look at the word live, meaning another word that he might have used was walk. In these words of behavior, of lifestyle, uh, you must no longer live as who? Who does uh, Paul use as the point of uh, comparison for how we should live, to clarify and to give an example? As the Gentiles do. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. It's not that he, being a Jew, is uh, being discriminatory against those who are not Jews, the pagans, Romans, Greeks, and so on and so forth. It's just that for him, Gentiles exemplifies a a type of living, a style of godless living, uh, a mind and a sensibility that does not know the Lord, doesn't know the Holy Spirit, doesn't know the Word and the teaching of God as the Romans and the Greeks lived. So he's saying, you know, do not live the way those who do not know the Lord and who do not have the benefit of the Word of God live. Okay, so it's a defensive kind of uh, way of putting it. And how do, how do the Gentiles live? How does a mind that's not, not, that does not know Christ or the Word of God, that has not been shaped, formed, seeded by um, the Word of God live? Well, it says, you know, the Gentiles, these Romans, these Greeks, with a highly sophisticated culture, great philosophy, great order in their government, and so on and so forth, and their art, And yet, they live in the futility, the futility of their thinking. And I will continue to the next verse, verse 18. It says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That is a profound, complex, rich... um, Phrasing there. Because you'll find that same idea repeated several times in the teaching of the New Testament, in particular in in Paul's thinking. Number one, notice that in the futility of their heart. The word futility, matayotes, it means devoid of truth and of appropriateness. Um, The mind that is not shaped by the Word of God the thinking that is not enriched and founded on the teachings of Scripture and on the life of the Holy Spirit is a thinking that is destined to fail. This is why I think the futility, something futile is something that doesn't lead to success. And uh, the idea is, you know, that a thinking style or or a way of uh, thinking that is not founded on submission to God and to the Word of God is destined to fail, no matter how exalted, no matter how sophisticated it is. It becomes like a computer that is able to do certain things, but at any moment it may start producing gibberish. 
It is what the Apostle Paul calls also in Romans a reprobate mind. And I want to lead you into that. You know, this, this idea of a, a life that is not led by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God is failed. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a failure. It's destined to produce bad decisions and bad thinking. And again, this is what, he, this is what the Apostle Paul speaks about over and over again in the book of Romans. Um, let's, let's go to Romans, uh, Wendy. Uh, and I, by the way, I thank Wendy because she's uh, standing in for um, the person who generally does the projection, and she's doing a great job. Thank you. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. And let's look at this here. Um, how how this, this, this mind that is not uh, founded on the Word of God thinks. Look at uh, chapter 1, Romans, verse 21. Paul is talking about precisely these these societies, these cultures that don't know the Lord, these cultures that have insisted on having their own way and living as they please. And and this is this description, Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Rebelliousness, unacknowledgement of God's sovereignty and lordship. And it says here, but their thinking became futile. Do you see the same idea? Futile thinking destined to fail, destined to make bad decisions that lead to suffering and failure. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you see the same kind of uh, imagery and uh, vocabulary. In, In Ephesians it says, in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding. And separated from the life of God. So again, you, you have the, the same idea here. Look then again in verse 24, Romans 1:24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but um, it's interesting that over and over again. The mind of Christ in, in the Apostle Paul leads him to connect this mind that is separated from God and from the illumination that comes from the Holy Spirit and uh, ungodly living, sensual living, uh, living prey to the appetites of the flesh, undisciplined, uncontrolled, led simply by flaming, burning animal appetites. When you disconnect yourself from the ligaments, the safety measures of the Word of God, you simply abandon yourself to an uncontrolled life. And isn't it interesting that when you see throughout history, let's say in Greek culture, for example, or Roman culture, these are highly exalted cultures, produced extraordinary art. We see them all the time in museums. Philosophy like that of Plato and Socrates and so on and so forth. Amazing, amazing cultures, government. And yet they failed. They were destroyed. They disappeared in their influence. Uh, uh, they, They fell prey to more strong cultures coming from the north, those tribes that invaded Rome. Um, and, and uh, overtook it because they lived a much more dis- the Spartans, for example, the, the, all these different cultures, the Franks, and so on and so forth. These were cultures that were, even though they were rough and, and violent and uncultured, but they had certain disciplines that the Romans had abandoned. The Romans had just let themselves go into homosexuality and uh, 
bestial desires and, uh, you know, just lasciviousness of every sort. And, and, and it happened to the Greeks as well. And it is happening to us as well. It's been happening for the past 50 years in America and over the world. As America and all these nations have uh, abandoned the protective structures of the Word of God, and they have gone from being not necessarily totally Christian nations, but nations that feared God and that had a certain respect for the Judeo-Christian heritage. As they have abandoned that safety, they have then just gone run amok into their appetites. And uh, this uh, sensuality and this immorality of life has now become not only tolerable, but it's become advisable. It's become uh, celebratory. It's become actually recommended and uh, highly respected and exalted. Which is fascinating because this is what the Apostle Paul says also, that as you become deeper, as you go deeper and deeper in immorality, not only do you practice it, uh, but you also actually enjoy it and, and you, you celebrate it. You, ha- you feel no shame about it. That's what lasciviousness, the word las- uh, lasciviousness, you know, uh, in, in the Bible, it's aselgia, which means lacking in shame. It is shameless behavior. And this is, the proje- this, this is the projection that you see here. So, um, you know, in verse 26 of Romans 1, I'm still in Romans 1, it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. It's talking about lesbianism. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust. Look at the powerful imagery there. They, they just became, you know, radioactive in uh, their appetites, uncontrollable. Uh, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, no, notice something here which is interesting and very curious that it is God Himself who actively gives these uh, cultures to that kind of behavior. God Himself is involved. Why? Because God is indignant. When a culture is determined that to deny God, to reject them, to not take him into account, to not give him the, the lordship and, and, and to not submit to him as he deserves and as a sovereign requires, God's anger is inflamed. He becomes annoyed at the humanity. And then he actively makes a decision, okay, you don't want to serve me? You don't want to live in subjection to my teachings? Then I'll let you go. I will commit you into depravity. I'll let you, because this is what humanity is. Without the ligaments that hold it together in safety, this is what cultures become. They become animal-like. They become futile in their thinking. They produce all kinds of crazy philosophical ideas and elegant doctrines and sophisticated cultural uh, winds, but they are, at their base, destructive And they are not conducive to the health of a nation or of a family or of a human being. Uh, They are destructive. And who is behind all of that? Also Satan, who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to produce um, families that are dysfunctional, children who don't know what they are, uh, societies that are 
divided amongst themselves and violent and where citizens don't feel that they have any due, any, any allegiance or any responsibility to the greater culture. They want to just live by, them, by themselves. And in all of this is a God who says, okay, I'll take my protective covering from you. And there is a demon, Satan, who is very interested in sowing destruction in the life of nations and of uh, cultures. All of this because they refused to submit themselves to the protective covering and to the restraints that the Word of God provides. So you see this uh, in all of these ideas, you know, that, that this, is the, this is the consequence. In verse 32, it says in Romans 1 again, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do not do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you notice that, that this is exactly how we are living today? Not only do we, you know, tolerate certain things, but now these very things become dominant. They, they become natural, normal, even admirable and enviable. I think there are parents today who are delighted to see their children at five, six, seven years old say that they want to be a girl when they're a boy, or they want to be a boy when they're a girl. You see that in, in, in uh, uh, YouTube and all other places all the time. You know, I see sometimes these parents who are celebrating their kids at five years of age or six wanting to be transgender. And what you see really is a human being behind them, a mother or a father, who kind of thinks it's heroic to have a child not know who he is and want to, want to be that. They see it almost as, wow, that brings me some prestige to have my child be transgender at that age before my friends and before uh, the greater society. They have become so deluded in their thinking that now they believe that something that should be worthy of pity and horror actually is prestigious. And so you see many parents subtly leading their children into these perverse confusions because their thinking has become completely clouded and oriented toward destruction. And this is what we have in society these days, where all of these behaviors that before in other cultures are seen with great horror, and it's not just Christianity, by the way. Look at the Muslim culture and look at the Hindu culture in its better moments and Buddhism as well. You know, they, they, these cultures see all of these behaviors with the same kind of horror and aversion. But when a society leaves the protection of the sacred and becomes just self-driven and uh, reason-driven without a point of reference, Beyond it, it is lost, and it becomes all of these evil things that the Apostle Paul says. So let's go back again so, uh, to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, because you see that you know, th these, these are thoughts that are prevalent throughout the thinking of Scripture. It's not just in one passage. So it says, um, don't live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. Understanding is nebulous. It's uh, shadowy. And separated from the life of God. You've seen that. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This idea of obstinacy, hardening of the heart. And we've seen that many times before. Brothers and sisters, do not allow your hearts to be hardened against truth. I pray that the Lord will always keep us very soft to the teaching of Scripture. That we will always be tender. When the Scripture speaks to us, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, Let's gravitate toward it. Let's be teachable. 
I think today what we have is a church that is often very rebellious and say, hey, don't, don't teach me. I know, what, I, know how, I know how to read. I know what, how to interpret this. And uh, you see, it it's becomes more and more difficult to lead congregations <clears throat> into truth because people are very sophisticated. We live in a very sophisticated culture. And so people, they, you know, they believe what they know. They can always consult Google and you know, Wikipedia and find out the truth for themselves. So more and more, I think the teaching of the Word of God is, and the, of the teachers of the Word of God are laid aside so that people can exercise their own independence. So this is obstinacy. This is the hardening. And when you become hardened, when you become so insistent on your own truth that you choose to ignore the truth of God, then your heart becomes harder. And, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And so you, the harder you become, the more distant you become. The more distant you become, the harder you become. And it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. This is what's happening at the, at the level of the general culture, but it's also happening to a certain degree in the life of many believers. The hardening of their hearts leads God to be grieved. And then having lost all sensitivity, verse 19, what, what does it mean to have lost all sensitivity? It means that, you know, you no longer are, your conscience is no, is no longer affected by any, any behavior, any depravity, no matter how horrendous it might be. You take it for granted. You, you see it. I mean, it's like that. We, these days, we have become more and more inured to immorality because it's, it's been made uh, attractive. This uh, culture is consecrated to providing all kinds of subtle signals to our psyche to normalize sin. And so you see all kinds of subliminal messages in advertisement, in media. And what you're doing, what is happening is that you are being slowly, subtly, and powerfully, because precisely it's being done subtly and unconsciously, you are being subtly doctrined, indoctrinated in a different way of looking at uh, behavior, morality, human relationships, our relationship to God. And so you become insensitive to anything and everything. You, you, you can accept anything. And this is where we are now. They have lost all sensitivity, and they have given themselves over. It's, it's plunged. That's the idea. They have simply abandoned themselves greedily and actively to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. That's the word aselgia, meaning the lack of shame. Aselgia is just that. It's, it's, a, it's a behavior that is that's not ashamed of anything. It's no longer done in the dark. It's done in the daylight. It's no longer done uh, with a sense of uh, modesty or, or, you know, saying, yes, I know I'm behaving badly. It's more like, so what? And now the, 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 the sacredness of the human body, the, the modesty that becomes a human being is all abandoned. And exhibitionism becomes the norm. So they have abandoned themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of shamelessness. And they are full of greed. And then what you have, uh, again, in verse 20, is um, a call, again, to the very opposite. This is the way the Gentiles, this is the way pagans, this is the way people who don't know Christ, this is the way people who, whose ground has not been tilled by the teaching of Scripture. This is the way they live. That, however, is not the way of life you learn when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. That is a mouthful right there. And, you know, we cannot overlook it in our haste 
because, um, you know, when I read that, I, I, I stop there for a moment saying, you know, by the way, this is not the way you are supposed to feel and live. When you heard about Christ, you know, I, I have another controversy uh, that I'm trying to resolve through this teaching. And it is this idea, you know, I hear people all the time say, you know, just, just talk to me about Jesus. Just talk to me about Christ. You know, people come to church to, to hear about Jesus and about Christ. And, and don't talk to them about this or that or that behavior. Don't make them uncomfortable. You don't want to sound like, uh, you know, an old-fashioned, uh, pharisaic, rigid, old-time church. Talk about topics that are, you know, more relaxed less confrontative, that make people feel more at ease with themselves. Just talk to them about Christ. You know, stick to the red letter parts of the Bible. You know, the red letter, the, the quotes of Christ. And, you know, it, 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 not only does it disturb me, it irritates me. Because it is a false understanding of Christ. And I promise you I will finish with this. Because, I mean... What it does is it, it reduces Christ to this, uh, you know, cloud-like entity where everything fits. And uh, there's no structure. Again, there's no coherence. There's no specificity. And this is why, it, you know, you see here it says, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Do you see that Jesus is not just uh, this sort of uh, Casper-like phantom. Jesus is a set of teachings. Jesus is a set of beliefs. Jesus is a call to living. Jesus is a way of behaving. Jesus is a horizontal way of understanding the gospel. Who is Jesus? That is the question that I've been asking myself lately. Who is Jesus? And Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos. No? And Jesus is not just the four books of uh, the, uh, the Gospels. Jesus is the teachings of the Apostle Paul as well. It is the same spirit. You know, there are people who think that the teachings of Jesus that you see in the four Gospels is more sacred and more inspired than the teachings of the Apostle Paul or Peter or James. No. They have the same equal value and the normative power. Do not fall prey to this um, idea that somehow... James is less inspired than the Jesus that I read about in the Gospels. No, it is all one spirit that inspired the, 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 the same words. And so when Paul speaks about these behaviors and these values, it is the Holy Spirit speaking. And when we speak about Jesus, when I see Jesus, what I see is this divine being, this man, God, who... Um, embodies righteousness, truth, discipline, godly living, obedience to the Father, subjection to the truth. Did I say holiness? Righteousness. This is what, if you believe in Jesus, you have to believe in all the things that are embodied in the Word of God. All the normative, prescriptive aspects of the Bible. So go back to that, that understanding. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, 
We have to be miners, explorers of uh, the truth that is contained in the name and the person of Jesus Christ. We have to study the doctrine. We have to study the teachings. We have to study the prescriptions of the Bible. It's not just, you know, you cannot be a Christ follower if you're not a Christ doer, in other words. You know, and this is what this chapter is all about. It goes from the grand truths of unity and the sublime things that unify us and so on to Monday to Friday living every day and being confronted by the claims of God over our lives, our morality, our values, our use of money, the use of our time, our conversation. And you will see, I, I, you know, I, as I said, I will stop here, but it's unfortunate because maybe, you know, I just have to increase Take one more chapter, one more sermon to really extract all the truth that is here. Because then in verse 25, there is an even deeper unpacking of what the Apostle Paul has just said. He gets now into the nitty-gritty. He gets into the, the, the little details, granular level, as they say, of... Uh, the Christian life. And, you know, I, I think we'll have to do that because I think it would be unjust to let go of that. I, I think if we can hammer in certain truths, I think it's important. So, when you heard about Christ, when you were taught in Him, in who He is, what He represents, what He incarnates, in accordance with the truth, the doctrine, the teaching that is in Jesus... And he goes, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, maybe I'll pick up right there next time. Come, please, and, and uh, listen to these truths because they, 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 they cleanse us. They're injections that um, inoculate us against certain temptations and certain dangers that we are living in right now. You know, and, and, and so what, what I'm saying is that congregations, we are living in a time where the church of Jesus Christ needs to be unified by a common understanding of truth, by a commitment to truth on the part of humble individuals who realize their imperfection and weakness and who gobble up the word of God because they know that it's the only thing that's going to keep them healthy and wholesome in a time of great danger. And so we cannot do away with doctrine. We cannot uh, allow ourselves the luxury of downplaying doctrine and good teaching and solidity in how we understand the word of God. On the very contrary, in a time more than ever, does that make us unpopular? Let it be. That's, 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 that's not our problem. Our problem is to be faithful to the Word of God because that's what's going to keep you healthy and me healthy and this church healthy as well. So let us now embrace a spirit of humility. As I do from up here, I say, Father, have mercy on me. Father, have mercy on our resistance to your truth and to your word, Father, have mercy on these appetites that live within me, that threaten to engulf me and, and just uh, drag me into things that I abhor. Keep us whole. Forgive us when we stray, Father. Forgive us when we abandon your truth 
and, and we are encouraged because we know that you're a merciful, loving Father who is not out to torture us or to flagellate us when we sin. You are compassionate, but you call us into that holiness, and we will not try to flee from that call to holiness. We will stay within it, and we will depend on your Holy Spirit to keep us whole. So keep this congregation healthy. Keep it tethered to your truth. Keep it founded on your word. And keep us in that tension between grace and truth and holiness. Help us to navigate so that we don't become rigid either. We don't become self-righteous. We remain humble and loving and compassionate, even as we know that you call us to a higher truth. Help us to stay in that tension. We will not flee from it. And we bless your people, those who are here, those who are at home, those who are near, those who are far, spiritually or emotionally, as well from where we are seeking to be. And uh, help us, Lord. We know that only you are just, only you are righteous. And we want to be close to your righteousness and your truth. We bless your people this morning. And we commit them to your care as they leave this place. Keep them healthy. Keep them protected physically. Keep their homes clean. Father, help us to walk with confidence and with carefulness at the same time. Help us to trust in you. Even as we know that we are walking in dangerous times. And we commit our lives and the lives of our loved ones to you, Lord. And to your fatherly protection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more resources like this in our website, leondejuda.org, and in our social networks by searching for Congregación León de Judah. We look forward to being with you again. God bless you.